And now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 17 as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the 10 horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not, and yet is. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we receive these things today, you would give us clarity of thought, that you would give me clarity of speech, that your word would be revealed to us by your spirit and that you would strengthen us and that you would encourage us and embolden us in all of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have ever seen a medieval drawing of an animal, it's likely that you were looking at an illustration from a bestiary. A bestiary is a book containing the descriptions of hundreds of animals written and artistically illuminated by monks. Monks would collect these, these, these data points on various animals that they knew about, and they would write stories and morals, and they would draw these interesting uh, little, little figures of, of various animals. Some of these creatures in medieval bestiaries are familiar to us because they exist in our world, lions and weasels and hedgehogs. Some of them are mythical, like dragons and griffins, and unicorns, but they all live together right next to each other within the pages of these books. And they each are accompanied by some text about the behavior of the animal and what you might learn from God's creation by studying the animal. So the kingly lion was said to give breath to his cubs. He would breathe on his cubs and give them life. You know, the way God breathes his spirit into the life of man. The unicorn was a symbol of purity. The dove, the dove is safe so long as she stays in the shelter of a certain tree. The dragon cannot harm her. Uh, so Christians are safe from their enemy Satan as long as they stay in the shelter of the church. These were the kinds of lessons that they would draw from these, uh, from, from these animals and the descriptions of them. It wasn't meant to be particularly scientific, and even the, the drawings themselves weren't meant to be anatomically accurate. Many of the illustrations are strangely out of proportion. If you've seen some of these, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're almost comical, uh, kind of the way that children draw animals. But if you could imagine what it would be like to have never seen an elephant or to have never seen a platypus and then have some traveler describe it to you and now you try to draw one, especially if you're a monk who isn't that great of an artist to begin with, then you get something like you find in the medieval bestiaries. In addition to that, we don't know how much of the stranger anatomy is just bored monks making up stuff. So we don't, we don't know that at all. So bestiaries, they weren't biology textbooks. They weren't meant to be, but their desire was to connect animals to moral lessons. And, and, it is, and, and that came out of a belief that God has revealed himself to us through his word and through his creation. And that creation itself, the animals that populate this creation are sources of instruction for us. 
Job says this. Job in chapter 12 of his book, Job says, ask the beasts and they will teach you and the birds of the air and they will tell you or speak to the earth and it will teach you and the fish of the sea will explain to you who among all these does not know that the hand of Yahweh has done this in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. You look at the animal kingdom and you learn lessons about humanity, about about the world. You learn lessons about God. Solomon puts it more succinctly. Solomon says, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. The understanding here is that animals are given their instincts. They're given their natures by God. And God gave them these characteristics to serve as examples for man. So even in these bestiaries, fanciful composite creatures, there are lessons. They, they have these uh, strange creatures, but still get across some principle. Like the legendary manticore. The manticore uh, had the body of a lion, the face of a man. It had a scorpion's tail. It was thought to be uh, unconquerable. It was utterly terrifying when it was a fully grown adult it would lure travelers away from the road. It would paralyze them with its stinging tail and then, and then devour them entirely. So you couldn't kill it, you couldn't stand up to it, you couldn't defend yourself against it, but they were easy to kill when they were young cubs, when their stinging tail had not yet developed. So you can exterminate them when they're small if you have an infestation of manticores. And, and this, even this fanciful creature is a fitting illustration on the danger of sin, the danger of temptation. Stamp it out while it's small. Kill it while it's small, lest you be destroyed. And you may think this is an odd way of teaching, to present fantastic beasts and then use them for lessons. But that's exactly what's going on in the book of Revelation. In our study so far, we have seen a number of composite beasts. We've seen the cherubim who rejoice before the throne of God day and night, who have the face of an ox and the face of a lion and the face of an eagle and the face of a man. Um, they worship before the throne of God. We've seen the demonic army of locust scorpions who have faces like men. They have hair like women. They have teeth like lions. We've uh, seen Satan himself depicted as a dragon. We've spent time looking at the beast rising from the sea who had seven heads and 10 horns, who had features like a leopard, a leopard and a bear and a lion. <clears throat> when we studied the sea beast, which we're going to refer to many times today, when we studied the sea beast, it's rather obvious that this is the Roman empire and even becomes clearer today that it is the Roman empire, the sea beast. And we saw this other beast, the beast from the land that looked like a a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. That, of course, we said that's, that's very clearly apostate Israel. That's, that's Jerusalem that has declared its allegiance to Caesar, as they did during the trial of Jesus. Um, unbelieving Israel made an ally out of, out of the Roman Empire and created this unholy union. And that's, that's depicted in Revelation as a sea beast and a land beast. Now in chapter 17, we have this mashup of these creatures. These composite creatures even come together further and make an even worse monstrosity so that we don't know where one ends and the other begins. But... Before we dive back into Revelation, we've taken about a five-week break, and so we need to get caught back up and remember where we are and what we're doing. Let's remember what we're studying. In fact, 
we can go all the way back to the beginning for just a second. The entire message of the book of Revelation can be, uh, can be communicated and understood and we can get context for the book of Revelation from chapter one, verse one. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. This is the revelation of Jesus, things which must shortly take place, which are signified. Those three things are, are pretty important parameters to help us understand the entire book of Revelation. First of all, this is the revelation of Jesus. This is not the obscuring of Jesus. This is not the muddying of the waters. This is not the clouding of Jesus. This is the revealing. This is the, the opening up of Jesus, who he is, and, and his operations from heaven. So in the book of Revelation, we see just how Jesus becomes the king of kings, just how all of the empires of the earth come under his reign and also how he is vindicated against the wicked city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem declared him to be a rebel and a sinner and a revolutionary when in fact it was Jerusalem that was disobedient. Jesus wasn't being disobedient. Jesus was obeying his father's law. Uh, Jerusalem was out of, out of order. And so this book reveals that Jesus is the faithful son and Jerusalem is the harlot city, as we see in this vision in chapter 17. So that's the first thing. Revelation is a revealing of Jesus. Secondly, this book is full of things which must shortly take place. It begins by saying that right off the bat, chapter one, verse one, these are things which must shortly take place. And if you study the book of Revelation with a pencil in your hand, underline every time we see quickly, or soon, or this is near, or this is very near. These events all have relevance and importance to the believers in the first century. These are not things that they're waiting 2,000 years to, to happen. These are not things that are far off. In, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, Jesus on the Mount of Olives told his disciples uh, this generation is not going to pass away until all these things take place. The disciples were asking questions about when's the temple coming down? When is all this judgment coming? And Jesus said, it's happening to this generation. This generation will not pass away till all these things take place. So in chapter one, verse one of Revelation, you are told all of these things must quickly come to pass. And then it's repeated throughout the book. And then thirdly, this book is signified. It is written in the language of signs, of symbols, symbols that have been used throughout the entire Bible. In Revelation, we have sun, moon, stars, trees, mountains, man, woman, child, dragon. We have all of these signs that you have learned how to read from chapter one, verse one of Genesis all the way up to Revelation. I had a pastor friend this past week who took a new church and the church asked him as he moved to this new church in adult Sunday school, they asked him, why don't you teach the, teach the book of Revelation? And he said, well, I'd love to. That would be really exciting. I'd love to teach the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings to, to the adults. And the first Sunday, he opened up to Genesis chapter one and he started teaching from there. And uh, he got to about Exodus 20 before somebody asked him, are you, are you gonna get to Revelation? I thought you said you're gonna do Revelation. But he was teaching through the entire Bible because Revelation is a commentary on the entire Bible and you require the knowledge of everything that's come before to understand this book. We interpret this book by the rest of the Bible. We don't interpret this book by 
the newspaper or the headlines or talk radio today. That's not how we interpret this book. It is signified, it is written in the language of symbol, symbols that have already been defined throughout the scriptures. Okay, so it's the revelation of Jesus, things that must shortly take place written in the language of symbol. Thus far in this book, let's catch up quickly to where we are. Jesus has called his friend, the apostle John, up into the heavenlies to witness how things run in heaven. There's a great worship service. Jesus ascends to take up a book. This book contains all of the curses that Moses said in Deuteronomy would fall upon a covenant-breaking people. And Jesus is the one who can take up this book because Jesus is the only one who's kept the covenant perfectly. Jesus is the only one who kept God's law perfectly. So he alone is worthy to take up this book. This book has seven uh, seals on it. So as Jesus pops the seven seals off the book, seven preliminary warning judgments fall on the land of Israel. Then Jesus opens the book and seven angels trumpet out the contents of the book. These are further warnings to Jerusalem and to the land to repent, to forsake their idols, to forsake their unholy union with Rome. And then uh, we have a day of atonement scene where instead of uh, the high priest taking bowls of incense and blood into the most holy place, we have angels pouring out of the holy place, the heavenly sanctuary, to pour bowls of uh, hot liquid wrath on the land and on the city uh, to, uh, to, to consummate the judgment against Jerusalem for her unbelief. So all of these uh, seals and trumpets and bowls all have to do with events that happen in the first century to the city of Jerusalem. These are things which must shortly take place, and they all have parallels to things that happen to the city of Jerusalem in the first century as we got closer and closer to the final destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Now, as we get close to that final judgment on the city, we transitioned in chapter 17 to this vision of the city of Jerusalem as a harlot. She's riding the beast that we've seen before, the Roman Empire. When we last saw this woman before this, back in chapter 12, she was clothed with glory. She was giving birth to the son. She was mother Israel. And the son that she bore kicked the dragon out of heaven. She's driven into the wilderness and she's protected while the dragon goes off to make war with her offspring. Now we check back in on her in chapter 17 and we find out that she's riding around in the wilderness on the back of the beast. She's not making war with the beast. She's in league with the beast. She's drinking the blood of the martyrs, she's made up like a prostitute. She's not engaged in warfare. She's in communion with the dragon. She's made a treaty with him. And she's not protecting her holy offspring. She's not defending them. She's eating her young. And you're not alone if you're shocked and if you're revolted by this image. Even John has a hard time keeping it together when he sees this. So we're going to just walk through these 12 verses today, and then I've got one application at the very end. <clears throat> so if you're following along, pick up in Revelation 17, 6. I saw the woman, this is John speaking, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. John's jaw hits the floor, but the angel is there to explain things to him. And that angel is there for us too, to make sense of all this. He tells John, there's no reason to get upset. I'm going to tell you what's going on here. I'm going to explain to you what you're seeing. 
And he begins, the angel begins not with the description of the woman. It's very clear who she is, but he's going to tell us more about the mysterious beast that she's riding in verse 7. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now I said this beast is a composite of some of the previous foul creatures that we've seen. If we start with his description at the beginning of chapter 17, he has all of these things in common with other beasts that we've looked at so far. He comes from the abyss, like the beast that made war on the two witnesses. He has blasphemous names, like the sea beast. He has seven heads and ten horns, like the dragon, like the sea beast. He's scarlet, like the dragon. He's red, like the dragon. He doesn't have anything in common with the land beast, apostate Israel. But of course, apostate Israel is represented in the woman in this vision. The beast she rides, though, is the composite of the sea beast and the dragon. It's, it's the empire married together with Satan. She, uh, she shares the identity of the land beast, corrupt Jerusalem, but she's riding and she's in league with the empire. And again, this image is concerned with the political and social climate of Jerusalem in the late first century, around 60 AD and following. When Jerusalem says, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. They cross a line and they go over into alliance with Rome and they actually assist Rome in pursuing and persecuting and oppressing the church. But the angel first directs our attention to the beast. And verse eight is bookended by two strange sayings from the angel. Watch this. The beast, uh, the angel says, this is the beast who was and is not and will go into perdition. And then at the end of verse eight, the angel says, this is the beast that was and is not and shall be present. What does that sound like to you? Have you heard that kind of formula before? Do you, does that sound familiar to you? Back in chapter one, the triune God is proclaimed to be the one who is and who was and who is to come. You see, the triune God is eternal. There's no point on the timeline where you can go where God isn't. We never escape his presence. We will never outlive him. Nothing will outlast him. He is before everything. He is after everything. And he reigns right now. And he also reigns right now. And he reigns over this second as well. <laughs> as you move through time, as you go, he reigns over every moment. He is Lord of every second, of every minute, of every hour. The dragon and his beastly empire, however, on the other hand, they're at best a parody. They're around for a while, but their existence and their power is interrupted. They were, they are not, and they will go into perdition. Do you see that? That, that parallel, do you see that parody even of the beast's um, uh, identity as opposed to the triune God? For a time, 
beastly empires have this overwhelming presence. And you think that oppressors and you think that tyrants are going to last forever. You think we're never going to be out from under them. We're never going to be free. We're never going to be liberated. And you're inclined to proclaim things like this is one nation indivisible. It will last forever and ever and ever and ever. Well, everyone thought Babylon was indivisible until it wasn't. And everybody thought the Roman Empire was indivisible until it wasn't. We find out the hard way that every kingdom that doesn't bow the knee to King Jesus is utterly, inevitably divisible. It is divisible. The Trinity is the only entity in all of heaven and earth that is indivisible. Everything else is divisible. And so is this kingdom, this empire, this beast that's in this, in this picture. Nevertheless, while this empire sits in the spotlight on the stage of history, this beastly empire has the attention, it has the worship of a class of people. The angel says the people marvel at this. In fact, the people who dwell on the earth, the people of the land, Israel, marvel at this beast. They're enthralled by it. Those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, the angel adds. Here we see the ultimate reason that they reject the Lord Jesus and they buy the lie because their names are not written in the book of life. In Ephesians uh, 1.4, Paul writes that we, the bride of Christ, we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. In the eternal counsel of God's goodness and wisdom, God secured for himself a vast, innumerable company of people in Christ. He called them, he redeemed them, he set his name on them, they are his. He's written their names in his book, all who are joined to Christ. But those who are not numbered among them, those who are not united to Christ, they have a religion too. They believe they have a savior. They believe they have a Messiah. They are enamored with the beast. They love the beast. You see, mankind is created for worship. You were created to worship, just like you breathe without thinking about it, just as you drink water and you eat. As part of being human, you are designed, you are created for worship. You either worship the Lord Jesus or you worship something else. It's not like rejecting the Lord Jesus means, well, I just don't believe anything. No, 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 no. You, no, you worship something. You will worship something. And civilizations, cultures, governments stand ready with objects for you to worship. There are all kinds of substitute messiahs for you to be enthralled with. Every society has a list of things that are sacred and dear to them. Every culture has a holy sanctuary. There's, there's some special sacred place, some belief, some ideology in every political order that citizens will go to any length to defend, even if it means being killed or, or killing. There are sacred boundaries in every society for those who are in and those who are out. They mark who belongs and who doesn't. And there are, there, there, are very, there are very specific ways to get in and there are ways to get expelled. Every society has a religious order. Every, every, every government has this kind of, of liturgical process that they conduct their business by. Now, it may be difficult when we look at our nation's history, it may be difficult to see this because in our society, uh, the truths of the Christian faith 
have been assumed for so long. So, so it may be difficult at certain points to see the subtle lies, the subtle differences between uh, falsehood and the truth. But in our day, we don't have that problem. In our day, the lines, the contrasts are very clear. And it's also clear how much the modern day pagans have borrowed from the Christian faith. I, I, don't, I don't stumble over who to call, how to, how to identify them. You know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the, the outrage mob, the left, capital L, left. I'm talking about Marxists. I'm talking about revolutionaries and reactionaries and progressives. You know, what's the shorthand? What do you want me to call them? Them, those. You know who I'm talking about. And uh, it's, it's clear that they have a religion. It's very clear that they have a liturgy and they have a very strict religion. In fact, they've become the thing that they hate the most. They're the worst kind of parody of the Puritans. The Marxists and the revolutionaries and the left and the outrage mob have a robust theology of original sin. I mean, they have a really strong theology. If you are white, if you are male, if you happen to be from the South, if your parents were successful, you are born with sin, obvious sins that we can all see. You don't even have to tell us. We know you are stained with original sin. But those sins can never be atoned for. You can never weep enough. You can never be comforted because you're just a filthy sinner and uh, you need to realize that and you need to know your role in society. They have a strict creed, very strict creed that you must believe. You must sign off to every line of this creed in order to be accepted as a enlightened individual. But you can't take any exception to any of their doctrinal statements even if they've only been around for like five minutes, even if, even if the thing that they believe and hold dearly to just came up last Tuesday, you've got to sign off on that completely. And if you deviate in any way, if you preach any heresy, you are branded a heretic. You have a scarlet letter and you're shunned. You get a permanent label. You are sexist, you are racist, you are homophobe, you are transphobe, whatever. They, they have a label for you and you just need to uh, take it, you bigot. Uh, that's, that's what you are. They do a really good job of catechizing their children in their government indoctrination centers. Uh, the difference between the left and evangelicals is that the leftists are serious about discipling their children. They are really, and oh, by the way, they'll disciple yours too if you give them over to them. If you let them disciple your children, they'll gladly take on that responsibility. They have their own creation myth that drives everything, right? Their, their whole framework is Darwinian. They, they even have their own eschatology. They've got their view of the end times that we've ruined the earth and one day we're going to pay uh, if we don't make things right. You know, if we just get universal basic income and everybody uh, stops driving cars and there's no personal property, then, then we'll have heaven on earth. That's our, that's our eschatology. Now, they have a religion, they have a creed. They have an entire framework that, that it doesn't hold very well together. It does, it's not very consistent, but they have one. They have one. Just as people in the first century marveled at the empire, just as the people of the land, former faithful Israelites, covenant-keeping people were enthralled with the empire, just as they became enamored with the empire, it's not difficult to get people today to worship the beast. Uh, the beast has its own built-in religion. And so people in the first century, they didn't care that Rome nailed people to crosses. 
They didn't care that Nero dipped Christians in tar and used them as, as human torches to light his dinner parties. They didn't care that, that, that people threw babies, unwanted babies, out in the trash heaps and exposed them. They didn't care. They didn't care about any of that as long as they had roads and aqueducts, as long as they had bread and circuses, as long as the boots and the swords of the Roman army were there to keep peace throughout the world. Hail Caesar, take it, whatever it is, that's, that's who I am aligned with and I'm happy to be aligned with Caesar. And this is the scary part, is that the people of Israel, formerly the people of God, are complicit in this. They join into this. They are enamored with this, just as the rest of the world is. They pledge their allegiance to Caesar. They reject Christ. They say, we have no king but Caesar. And then they turn and persecute the church and oppose the Lord Jesus and the true bride as they ally and align themselves with with Rome. And that's what's going on here. So I'm going to read a, a big chunk now uh, to, to further identify this beast. Uh, verse 9. This is the angel still speaking. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful." I'm going to try to simply and quickly unpack that. The angel says the seven heads of this beast correlate to the seven mountains of the city. Well, Rome is very famously the city of seven hills. Uh, the angel also says the seven heads align with seven kings. Well, uh, there were seven Caesars in the original Julian dynasty. Uh, and as the angel said, five are dead, one is existing, and one is yet to come. Well, this lines up perfectly. There was Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius uh, who had died. Those are the five that are gone. There's one now, Nero, who's on the throne as the angel says this, and as John writes this, and there's one to come, Galba, uh, and the angel says, he, he only lasts for an hour. He comes for a short time. Well, Galba didn't last very long at all. He was only around for a couple of months before everything within the government of Rome descends into, into chaos. Um, but the fall of the line of Julius Caesar doesn't mean that trouble is over for the church because the real enemy isn't these human emperors. The real enemy is the beast who controls them. He's gonna, he's gonna continue his manifestation after that that seventh emperor falls, there are these 10 horns that the, uh, that the angel speaks about. Um, these 10 non-kings uh, who follow. There are 10 imperial provinces in the Roman Empire, and their governors all give their authority and power to the beast in order to wage war against the lamb, and the lamb, Jesus, overcomes them. In, in our study in Daniel, on Wednesday nights, we've seen that prophecy of all the empires from Babylon to Rome. They're given power by God to uh, preserve order, to preserve civilization. They act as protectors for the covenant people. But then each one of them, Babylon and Persia 
and Greece. Each one of them, in turn, turns against the covenant people, and when they turn against them, they're all destroyed until ultimately the last kingdom, Rome, this is Daniel's prophecy, Daniel says Rome is going to be pulverized by the rock that fills the whole earth, that stone that grows and grows to fill the whole earth. Well, well, the angel is just talking about the same thing happening here. The last kingdom in the line is pulverized and, is, and, and the lamb overcomes them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Jesus now establishes his empire when he comes and the last of the old earthly empires are vanquished. Let's pick back up in verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people's multitudes, nations, and tongues, and the 10 horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Well, how does this lady sit over the waters? Well, um, Jerusalem sits over the nations. Jerusalem sits over the kingdoms of the earth. She has influence in every part of the empire. When you read the book of Acts, every time the apostles go somewhere, what do they find? Every town, every city they go to, what's there? A synagogue. There's a synagogue everywhere. Jerusalem has influence. Judaism is pervasive throughout the ancient world, and yet they don't use that presence and they don't use that opportunity to pave the way for the kingship of Messiah. Instead, they act as roadblocks. They oppose the church throughout the world, and for this, they are judged. And the twisted tragedy is this, the harlot apostate Jerusalem, apostate Israel has cozied up to the empire for protection. She has curried favor with the beast. She's pretended to be an ally in order to oppose Jesus and his bride. And yet, just as the wicked, hateful man has no use for a harlot who uses her up and throws her away, he has no love for her. So the empire when it's gotten everything it can out of harlot Jerusalem, the empire hatefully destroys the harlot city and throws her away. It's so, it's so pitiful and it's so pathetic. It kind of reminds me of middle school drama. I think you're all familiar with this. There's kind of this unusual, awkward girl, remember her, that she rejects her friends in order to be accepted by the cool kids. She wants to be liked and she wants to be loved and she wants to be accepted. So she rejects her nerdy friends, her kind of awkward friends, so that the cool kids accept her. And they do, the cool kids accept her so long as she mistreats and mocks the uncool friends. But the cool people are really laughing at her behind her back. And when they get bored with her, they dump her. And they usually do it in a very embarrassing public way, the most cruel fashion possible. And so this is, this, is the, this is what's happening here is that harlot city Rome, I'm sorry, that harlot city Jerusalem is currying the favor of the empire, but the emperor doesn't love her. The empire uses her up and throws her away. Rome dumps Jerusalem and destroys the city and the temple in AD 70. And they did just what the angel said that they would do. They hated the harlot uh, the angel says they hate her because they know she's not really one of them. They've always made exceptions for Jews when it came to their customs. It used to be quaint, but it's not funny anymore. 
They hate her. The Roman historian Tacitus at the time, he wrote how intensely all the surrounding provinces utterly despised Jerusalem. They had a deep animosity for the Jews. They hated her. The angel says they make her desolate. That's a word Jesus uses in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 when he talks about Jerusalem's impending judgment. The city will be bleak. It will be empty. It will be dismal. Nothing to offer, nothing to produce, nothing to sell or buy. It will be desolate. Desolate. It will be hated. It will be desolate. They will make her naked, the angel says. That's what happens to fornicators in the ancient world. They're, they're uh, publicly humiliated, full exposure. And then the angel says they will eat her flesh, just as the dogs ate up Jezebel, the original Jezebel. This harlot will be consumed and cannibalized. Uh, something else that the Roman historian Tacitus wrote is that when uh, Jerusalem begins its fall, uh, large Jewish communities around the Roman Empire were also massacred in Caesarea, in Syria, in Alexandria. They despised these people and they destroyed them. They ate them up. They, they left them desolate. When their time was up, their enemies were merciless. They burned the harlot city with fire. It's burned to the ground. Well, why do they do this? Who put it in their head or heart to do this? Well, in verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. These various rulers of the earth are given free reign by God because God has a purpose in doing this. They're sinning every step of the way just as they're working this out, but God has opened the floodgates. God is not restraining them for doing what they have in their heart to do. He's allowing them to do this uh, to work out his own purposes of judgment against the apostate people. And now the vision is all wrapped up in verse 18. And that woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Wait a minute, you've been saying this is Jerusalem this whole time. In what sense does Jerusalem reign over the kings of the earth? Well, God gave to David, and God gave to David's royal line a kingdom that was preeminent in the earth. It was a kingdom that ruled over the kingdoms of the earth. Remember last week I said Jerusalem was the heart of the earth? Uh, Jerusalem is the center stage of God's dealings with man. Well, this kingdom, as long as she was in covenant with God, she stood as a kingdom of priests interceding between God and the world. God gave the earth, Israel, to be guardians against idolatry. They were to teach God's law. They were to live God's law out before the inhabitants of the earth. They were to be instructors in leading the world into faithfulness to the Lord. And when Israel was obedient, when she prayed on behalf of the world, when she sacrificed and worshiped on behalf of the world, the world flourished. The world was at peace when Israel was obedient. But when Israel broke covenant, the world slipped into chaos and the nations turned on her and destroyed her. That's the whole pattern of the Old Testament. We see this happening over and over and over. And now we have this final desolation, this final destruction of the harlot. That's God's sign to his true bride, the church, that this old arrangement has been dissolved and now the kingdom has been transferred to the church. Now the church has been established over the nations so that now when the church is faithful, the world flourishes. And when the church lapses into idolatry and the church goes into heresy and superstition, the world suffers. The true bride will always be preserved. We always have these offshoots. We always have these branches. We always have these splinters who go act like the harlot, 
riding the beast. And they go through that same cycle. They ingratiate themselves with the world, a world that hates them, a world that has no time for them, and they end up destroyed. They end up devoured, just like the harlot in Revelation 17. Well, here's just one lesson to pull from today. This is it. And that is that we see the complete futility of compromise with evil. I want you to see, and I want you to sense the wretchedness of compromise with wickedness. Throughout this whole saga, as the woman uh, relates to the beast, it doesn't give her an opportunity to be liked more. She's hated. The beast hates her. She doesn't get her message out to a new audience. She doesn't present a new reasonable middle way between Caesar and Jesus, just given a third option between the two. No, Every step of the way she compromises and her compromises are called harlotry. And the people she is trying to buddy up to hate her and destroy her. You and I find ourselves in situations where we are confronted with unbelief and we're confronted with opposition to the gospel and we are, we are put at odds with those who are living in outright open rebellion to God's law. And when we get ourselves in those positions, when we find ourselves in those spots, what do we want? We want to be liked. We want to be respected. We don't want to be dismissed. We don't want anybody to think we're crazy. We don't want anybody to think that we're radicals or fundamentalists or uneducated. And so we always want to make everybody know, we want to make sure that they know that we're not, you know, like those Christians, right? You know the ones, the ones that you know, actually believe the Bible, you know, the ones who do what it says, you know, actually allow the Bible to shape our lives. We're not like those. We are more reasonable. We are more intelligent. We are more thoughtful. We can always see both sides. So we nod our head to evil. Even when somebody says the craziest things, they say, you know, I think I should legally be allowed to marry my Buick. And we just nod and we say, that sounds normal. That sounds right. Or I... I'm thinking of transforming myself into a marmoset. And I want you to recognize me as a marmoset. And I want you to use these pronouns for my marmoset self. And you nod your head and say, that's, that's totally normal. That's good. You live your truth. You do what you want to do. Because that's, that's okay and that's normal. Now, of course, what you do is you uh, don't enter into their lies and, and enter into their version of reality. You can say, boy, I... I I can help you with this. I can help you get out of this. I can help you see the truth. But when we enter into lies, when we affirm falsehood to gain the respect of wicked people, to gain their favor, we are betraying the Lord Jesus and we are betraying God's word. That temptation to ingratiate yourself with wickedness, that inclination to nod your head or click like or approve of sin comes at you in situations where you think there's a high cost for not compromising. You think if I don't give in, if I don't assent, if I don't nod my head, if I don't go along with this, there is an incredibly steep price to pay for, for sticking to my principles. And the whispering voice of doubt says, just give in, just go along and life will be so much easier. That's a lie it won't be easier. That's always a lie. It starts out easy, but it gets more and more difficult. Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the transgressor is hard, 
it gets more and more difficult. The more and more you compromise and whatever you think you gain by compromise, you ultimately lose. The people whose trust you think you gain by rejecting the Lord Jesus, they don't trust you. They don't like you. They're laughing at you. Remember the, the chief priest when Judas comes back and he tries to give him the 30 pieces of silver back? The chief priest don't want anything to do with him. I don't care what you do. Go, die. I don't, I don't care. I don't like you. I don't love you. They don't want anything to do with Judas. Just like the beast hates the woman, there is no honor for the traitor. There is no honor for the harlot. And so for us, part of understanding history and understanding biblical history is understanding, okay, where are we in the story? What part of this timeline are we living on right now? Well, we're right now at the point where whole branches of the church in the Western world are putting on too much makeup and they're squirting on cheap perfume and they're headed out the door to advertise themselves. Every rainbow flag flying in front of a church every pastor who has pronouns on his bio on the church page, every, every critical race theory sermon in the pulpit, every Marxist professor in the seminary, everyone who subjects the people of God to medical fascism on the Lord's Day, on Sunday morning, every one of these, every, everyone who waters down the gospel when they're asked, what is it you actually believe? What, what is it you actually stand for? All of this together is cheap perfume and gaudy makeup. This is all whoredom. This is harlotry. That's what this is. But right now, everyone who engages in this, they're cheered. They get high praise from the social elites because the wicked love the support of weak, compromised, spineless clergy. Of course, if they can get the support of weak churches, they get it. If they can get representatives of the church to support their agenda, it's not like they're gonna turn it away. They love to have, have clergy come and nod their heads to all of their grotesque and wicked plans, of course. But a point comes where they're going to get tired of that. That is the beastly empire gets tired of the harlot. At some point they get tired. They don't want even a mention of Jesus. Jesus is poison. Jesus is, is horrible to them. They don't want that. And it's the compromised church that gets devoured first when we get to that part of the story. When we get there, it is, it is the harlot church that gets destroyed. And don't forget who's in control this whole time. God, God is never out of control. It is God's purposes that are worked out even then. The compromised church right now will mock us, but then they will be first on the day of destruction. So people of God, do not ever compromise with evil. Don't ever make concessions. Do not ever bargain with wickedness. Don't nod your head and go along just to keep the peace. Put a head brace on if you have to keep your head from moving. Don't nod. Shake your head. No, that's not right. That's terrible. What are you talking about? Don't ever sell out in order to gain the approval of perverted people. Don't ever deny the Lord Jesus. Don't ever deny that this book is true and that it is authoritative and that it is sufficient. Don't ever do that. If you do, there's a name for you and there's a picture for you right in Revelation chapter 17. Do not ever be embarrassed by the name of Jesus. Don't be embarrassed. And if you confess his name and you're faithful to him, he will fight for you. He will defend you. He will vindicate you. 
He will reward your faithfulness and he will repeat your name before his father. That's what he says in Matthew 10. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father is, who is in heaven. Your name is on the lips of your savior and he intercedes for you before the face of his father if you will confess his name without wavering. But Jesus continues, whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. God forbid. Do not betray the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture, this vision of, of, this, uh, of this book that you've communicated to us to, to reveal your son more and more clearly. And we pray that you would ignite in us a fire of passion for the name of Jesus, for the mission of his kingdom, and for all things that he is doing in the world. Father, please preserve us and preserve our children from compromise. Preserve us from faithlessness and coldness and hardness of heart. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.